His real goal was to prove to the world that any child could learn anything. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Jilly Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So Andrew, I have heard your story many times about how you started IEW, some of your background, specifically your music background, and how you were trained by Dr. Suzuki, and I love that story. And I thought that today it would be great for our listeners to hear that story as well. So you learned violin at a very young age. You were taught using Suzuki method before Suzuki Method was even popular, correct? Yeah, it was uh, early 60s, -hmm. and a few Americans had gone over to Japan and brought back what they could of Suzuki Method. The materials had just been put into print in English. The original record series was called Listen and Play, Hmm. And the Suzuki method, as we recognize it today, I I don't even think had been trademarked in English yet, but there was this, oh, Suzuki teachers teach little kids to play by ear. Little tiny kids. This sounds very controversial. Right, right. So my mother, who was a piano and voice teacher, uh, she also played violin and was in the community orchestra Hmm. and the concert mistress of the community orchestra, my first violin teacher, Elizabeth Holborn, mm-hmm. was uh, kind of experimenting with this approach of teaching young children by ear. So began at a young age, I, I think it was five, mm-hmm. could have been just before, somewhere during that year, but they would uh, start out with a little cardboard box with a ruler taped on it to simulate a violin. And that was one of the first lessons is you learn how to stand and how to hold that thing under your chin and not let it fall out. And so I was, I think, one of the first wave of Suzuki kids Mm -hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. I live near Los Angeles. So as far as I know, there was only that one teacher. And then maybe 10 years later, by the time I was a teenager, there were more. But uh, it was definitely one of the, the new things at the time. Right. My boys took music lessons, as you know, many parents subject their children to music <laughs> lessons and force them to practice and bribe them. And it was my middle son, of course, that became the musician and actually plays guitar and many, many instruments, including piano. His teacher, Dr. Donnell, frowned on listening 
and mm-hmm. playing by ear. Yeah. And he was scolded when he was doing that. So, Well, yeah, even to this day, there are some teachers who have this idea that somehow, you know, hearing it before you figure out the notes mm-hmm. is cheating. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to prevent you from learning to read the notes. But I think the proof is in the pudding. At this point, probably, you know, almost all of the top violinists in the top symphonies in the world were early Suzuki kids. Mm-hmm. No one who sets out to learn to read music has ever failed, as far as I know, because they listened first. Mm-hmm. And if we kind of compare it to a language, and, and that's the one thing Suzuki did was he compared learning anything to learning your native language. Mm. And that's uh, originally was called the mother tongue method of learning. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we were to, to kind of shift over that attitude, we'd say to children, now, you're not allowed to hear or speak English until you read it. <laughs> I mean, it make, makes right. no sense at all. Right. So I think that fear that students wouldn't learn to read music because they would hear it first is as unfounded as saying that children can't learn to read English because they hear it first. In fact, the opposite is pretty much true. Right. It's virtually impossible to learn to read English if you don't hear it and acquire a database of words and syntax and sentence structures. And, and music is very much the same way. Right. By learning by ear, you build up that repertoire, and then you start to recognize those things symbolically much more easily. Right. Now, in defense of Dr. Donnell, I will say this because who knows? He may be listening to this and just <laughs> hitting his head saying, well, how could you defame me this way? But he did Joel. It was my middle son, Joel, who was playing music on the piano the way he had heard it played and it wasn't exactly the way it was written and so Dr. Donnell would have to correct that so that was just a little minor change and you know you shouldn't be listening to this you should just be playing it and that was why because he wasn't playing it as accurately as it was presented sure and that that can happen to anyone uh, especially if kids are hearing it and then practicing it incorrectly more than they're hearing it correctly, then you just embed wrong patterns. Exactly. But that can also happen with reading, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you have to have some type of self-checking system, mm-hmm. something to monitor you. <laughs> For Suzuki, the idea was not just the kids would play what they hear on the recordings, but that they would play with the recordings. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so that was a way to monitor and and Mm self-correct. If you had got a wrong pattern, it would pop out when you played something different (laughs) than what the recording was. And then he also produced accompaniment records so that the kids could first play with the violin and the piano, then with just the piano. So also kind of a continued control of error to some degree. So give, give us a little bit of timeline. You were a high school graduate, attended a little bit of college. Well, I grew up playing, and then mm-hmm. I quit playing in high school, as mm-hmm. many kids get distracted with other things. Mm-hmm. And I was working for 
a nonprofit organization that had a school associated with it. And mm. somehow, probably through the means of my mother, <laughs> someone at this in this organization discovered that I played the violin, which I didn't consider myself much of a violin player, having taken off, you know, several years there. But they said, would you teach violin in the school? And I thought, well, I don't know. I'll try. <laughs> and so I found a teacher locally and went back and started to review all the repertoire I'd learned as a kid. As a Suzuki teacher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I began teaching these children mm -hmm. and very quickly discovered I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but you must have enjoyed it. Well, it, it intrigued me. Mm -hmm. it, it definitely intrigued me. And uh, I was at that time kind of ready to move on from this, uh, this nonprofit I was with and mm -hmm. kind of get a career. I wasn't sure, you know, what, what did I really want to do? And I thought, well, if I were going to figure out how to be a violin teacher, I would want to go get some training at that time, and they still do now, have these uh, summer institutes mm. all over the country. So you can go to well, almost any major city. They're, they're usually held on university campuses with dormitories open during the summer. And, you know, hundreds, sometimes into the thousand of kids, families will come. They'll do, you know, like a summer camp, five days in a row. And they usually have teacher training with that. So I signed up for four one-week summer institutes to do book one, two, three, and four oh in five weeks' time, mm -hmm. which uh, actually meant I had to do something you really should only do when you're young and flexible and uh, not going to get exhausted. But I took a bus from Ithaca, New York, to San Francisco. Oh, my goodness. It was horrible. It took the whole fifth week there. But that's where I went. I, so I went to four different uh, five-day courses. Did in, you practice your violin on the bus? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think I pretty much was just trying to recover. But what I noticed in that uh, going to these many different places and observing a whole lot of different teachers was that there seemed to be kind of two groups of teachers, the mm -hmm. ones who clearly knew exactly what they were doing, why they were doing it, and how to do it well, and others who didn't fall into that category, who were kind of more, I don't know, random, less inspiring, less clear. So I thought, well, if I were to be a teacher, I would want to be like that group. And what I discovered was that all of those people either had been to Japan for some period of time or had been very close to someone who had been trained in Japan. Mm -hmm. So uh, I asked my dad for some help, and he did, and I flew over there pretty much having very little idea of what it was going to be like. <laughs> Not sure how long I would stay, but thought, you know, go to the source. Right. And uh, so I ended up living and studying there for just under three years. Wow. Wow. And, of course, 
you were trained by the man, Dr. Suzuki. Yes. Uh, when I was there, he was still relatively young. Uh, it was uh, 82 to 85, okay. and he was approximately 83 years old okay. there at that time. But the man had incredible stamina and energy and zest and vision. I mean, I can't even imagine what it might have been to be around him 20 years earlier. But when I was there, he taught a two-hour group lesson uh, for all the say, the teacher trainees, mm. for all the say, seven days a week oh my goodness. from 9 to 11 a.m. And, of course, none of us could keep up with that. You know, like, we've got to take a day off now and then. Right, right. Uh, and then we had master classes uh, usually divided into people who'd been there longer and, and people who had just come. But it would float around, and you could jump from one to the other if schedule needed. And uh, that was once a week. And those could last anywhere from, you know, one to five hours. It was pretty much the whole afternoon was blocked off. And there could be anywhere from four to a dozen people in the mm. room. And the master class style, of course, is you sit and observe other people's lesson. Which oh, is, interesting. So it's an individual lesson with the teacher, only you're able to watch everyone else's lesson. So basically, you're watching a teacher teach another student so that you could learn how to be the teacher. Well, there's that aspect to it as well. And, you know, I think it's a very efficient uh, way to go. And uh, it was rather, I must, you know, I would use the word, I guess, a little loosely, but it was kind of Zen-like. Mm. There weren't always a lot of explanations. There was kind of do this, try this, move your body this way. You know, and he'd push your elbow and fingers and wrists, and and then he'd say, "Listen," and then he'd play something, and then it, and then he would probably give you some task to accomplish, like do this thing ten thousand times before next week. Wow! You know, short little thing, obviously, <laughs> but to do anything ten thousand times is going to take a long time. And sometimes the lesson would be 10 minutes, and other times it'd be an hour. There was no sense of, you know, we have a right to a certain amount of time because we pay to be here. No, it was entirely at the master's whim. Hmm. And in a way, it was almost kind of a like a spiritual relationship, too. There were times when I at least... And I think others did, too, got this feeling like he could look into your soul. Mm. You know, he could see who you really are. And and he would say things to you that only made sense on a very interior, internal, mm. personal level. So he wasn't, you know, I don't think he was a Zen Buddhist or anything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the Zen idea, you have, you know, these sayings and you have to contemplate them because they're not obvious proverbs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he had uh, a number of these sayings that he had coined and actually were put together kind of on a list and, and they published a calendar with the sayings of Suzuki. And then when you um, graduate, he would uh, present you with a, a shikishi. It's a, it's a painted picture with some kind of 
saying in Japanese, he would handwrite that for each student. Not the, the whole picture was printed, but the, the saying, whatever he thought was the appropriate saying for the person, I guess. Do you recall what he said to you? Yes. Uh, he had one saying as, tone has a living soul. Hmm. You know, so obviously from a theological perspective, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But from a metaphysical perspective, the idea that music has a supernatural element to it mm-hmm. and that as you as you blend yourself with the music, it comes into you and you come into it. And so there's kind of a, a life that occurs with the tone. Mm-hmm. That's the best I can figure out what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> Do you recall what some of the other sayings he might have shared? Oh, yes. Uh, well, one of my favorites was, uh, student must become better than teacher mm. or both have failed. Mm. That was a good one. He's probably most well known for his saying, every child can learn. Mm-hmm. He was a man of tremendous faith in people. Mm-hmm. In fact, that perhaps was one of the most formative aspects for me in being around him is to see that he just believed in everyone. He believed in the potential of everyone to be their best, to be great, children and adults alike. Uh, he had a, a little thing, uh, a little dialogue that they would do at the national concert, actually any concert with a, a lot of children, but it was most impressive at the nat- national concert. So every year we would go to Tokyo and people from all over Japan would come. And there's a, a large, large sports arena called the Budokan. And the Budokan I don't know, it would be kind of like our Colosseum today, only they did martial arts types of things there, you know, the big sumo national competitions or judo and all that. So anyway, this the floor of the Budokan would hold about 2,000 children all standing there playing violin at the same time. And so the whole thing just took a long, long time. And it was the same every year. But it was, it was beautiful. It was powerful. Mm-hmm. They would, of course, decide who was invited because there were far more than 2,000 children in Japan playing violin at that time. Uh, but they would begin with a small group, you know, maybe a dozen of the top students playing some unbelievably difficult piece of music like the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto or something. And they would all play it in perfect unison to a piano accompaniment and... Then they would go down a notch and bring in a few dozen more kids and play something not quite so challenging as maybe the Mendelssohn Concerto. And then they would add in and kind of double that number. Then they'd play, you know, uh, the Mozart from Book 10. And and they would just keep adding students and work all the way down to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and Variations, which is the first uh, set of pieces in Book 1. And by that time, they had added children to the point where there were 2,000 children playing all at the same time on the floor of the Budokan. Of course, the ones who started now had been playing for, you know, two and a half, three hours because they're playing every piece and adding, and they have it all memorized. So all the children 
have all the pieces memorized. So no music stands to fuss with. No music stands <laughs> to fuss with, that's for sure. And of course, you know, spectators, all, all the families, friends, news people were always there. This was kind of a an event. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of us teacher trainees uh, would go. And then at the very end of the the big concert, he would recite this little pattern that was universal that the teachers did in their towns at their recitals and performances. And he would say, every child can learn. It all depends on the teacher. And then all of the children in unison would say, teacher, please teach me Mm. or please help me. And then he would say, every child can learn. It all depends on the parents. And then the children would say, Mother, father, please help me. And then he would say, every child can learn. It all depends on the self. Something loosely mm-hmm. translating mm-hmm. that. And then every child then would say, I will do my best. And I guess linguistically, it all depends on three different things doesn't make sense, but in a way, it does because it all depends on all three of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this habit of him believing in the teachers that he was teaching and being excited and enthusiastic while at the same time being able to be very pointed and almost harsh when needed, uh, like a good coach, you mm-hmm. know, you, you you never doubt the fact that that coach loves you, but sometimes the coach has to say hard things yes. that hurt a little bit. Yes, and he he completely believed in parents, and and he just absolutely believed that any child could learn anything, if all of the conditions, and the people, and the teaching methodology, um, were correct. If mm-hmm. if the pillars of talent education were in place then any child could learn anything. Wow. And, of course, his goal wasn't to create, you know, legions of, you know, hundreds of thousands of tiny violinists <laughs> around the world. That was not a goal. His real goal was to prove to the world that any child could learn anything because, look, any child can learn to play the violin. Right. And if you can learn to play the violin you can probably learn anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the pillars. Right. So the first one, uh, these are derived from the principles of the mother tongue method. So these pillars became the foundations of Suzuki method of instruction because he noticed that these were the way in which children learned their native language. Right. So before you go on, I just want to share with our listeners what I'm looking at. I'm looking at Andrew Pudua, and he is talking with his hands, sometimes fingering <laughs> a little bit, but there are no notes in front of him. He knows this so well. This is a part of who he is. So I just want you to know that he is not using well, now notes. Now I'm doomed to forget something. <laughs> you jinxed me. So I guess Suzuki woke up one day and noticed that all Japanese children speak Japanese hmm. and that no one else can speak Japanese as well as a Japanese child. I mean, you or I could go live in Japan for the next 20 years, and we would 
probably never be as fluent as speak as effortlessly as a six or seven year old child. At the same time, someone who was raised, say, in Japan and who has lived in the United States for, say, 50 years, her English is not as good or as clear as ours is. This is your mother-in-law. This is my mother-in-law, yes. So so Suzuki realized, as did Maria Montessori, that the young brain, the young mind, is so much more malleable and it's so much easier to teach. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the first idea that he came up with to cross-apply this to violin was start with young children. Why wait until a child is 12 years old? Mm. Why couldn't we start younger? Because their hands are too small. Yes, but it was rather convenient in that his family happened to own a violin factory in Japan, (laughs) and so they were able to start manufacturing smaller violins Mm. on a much larger scale, whereas before that, it had been just, you know, a luthier here or there making a very small violin on a special request, kind of for a prodigy Mm. or some weird family that wanted it. (laughs) But now they were able to crank out, you know, dozens of thousands of small instruments so that a child as young as three or four or five could have a working violin. Doesn't sound all that great, but it does work. (laughs) You can tune it, you can play it. And uh, so this starting in a young age, he realized, was part of the, the power of the method. The second thing he noticed is that Japanese children Uh, have the huge advantage of living in Japan Mm. (laughs) and that the environment plays a great factor. Mm -hmm. So children who are living in in a place where they're constantly surrounded by the auditory input, the the visual input of the language, the tactile, kinesthetic, the telepathic language, if you will, it's just a constant saturation. That makes it easier to learn that language. Then if you're sitting across the ocean in a different country trying to use some kind of curriculum or program, many people have found that to be extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. So environment is critical for success. So to emulate this, he thought, well, how do we bring music into the environment of the students? And uh, originally, he did this with those old reel-to-reel tapes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when uh, vinyl records became more ubiquitous, he was able to get recordings on these records and provide those for the family and encourage the parents, you know, play these records, you know, all day, you know, so that children Mm -hmm. are constantly learning, constantly hearing, and take them also to other concerts and hear other Mm. good music and and buy other records. But mostly uh, listen to the repertoire that you want them to learn to play. Mm. That way they learn it all. They have all of the patterns of notes and the combinations of patterns of notes. They have that all memorized. They don't have to learn the music. They already know that. They just have to train their fingers and body to reproduce that music. Mm -hmm. So that's the second pillar would be the right environment. Mm -hmm. So the third pillar of talent education is the right teacher. And Suzuki noted that children who learn to speak Japanese don't learn it at school. Actually, where do they learn it? At home. At home, from mother and father. That's Mm -hmm. why it's called the mother tongue method, Hmm. right? Our mother tongue, we learn it. 
And he kind of noticed that mothers are the best teachers because they have the two things that children need the most. That's the love and the time. Mm -hmm. So he thought, well, why not teach the moms how to play the violin (laughs) and how to teach the children? Then the mother can be the home teacher. Mm -hmm. And... This was kind of a revolutionary idea, but it worked very well, especially you can't expect a five or six-year-old child to go to a violin lesson and then remember all the things they should practice every day. I mean, that's kind of an unreasonable thought. However, if the mother and the child go to the lesson and the teacher teaches the child and the teacher reinforces that, is certain the mother knows what to do, has a nice little checklist of things to do every day, and they can do that together at home, then it goes much better, and the the training works, the skills develop. And it's very cute. You don't see this too often in the U.S., but in Japan, it's kind of, I think, at least when I was there, common. On the first lesson, uh, a mother would come with a child. Well, first they'd have to come and observe many lessons. And it's kind of a a little bit more rigorous application process than just saying, uh, here's my money, teach my kid. You know, they would observe many lessons. There would be kind of interviews. There would be some preparatory reading and such. But at the first formal lesson, the teacher would introduce the child to the mother Mm. and say, please greet your home teacher. Mm. Right. And then the teacher would introduce the mother to the child and say, please greet your home teacher student. And they would do that in a kind of formal way. In fact, I even heard that uh, some parents would say to their children, now leave the house and walk around the block and come back, knock on the door, and we'll begin the violin lesson for the day. And then when we're finished, you can walk around the block and come back home. Just to make it a special kind of formal Mm -hmm. thing. I I don't Mm -hmm. think that's necessary per se. Mm -hmm. But it kind of underscores the need to acknowledge the role of the mother mm-hmm. as the home teacher. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of revolutionary in the world. And then the fourth pillar of talent education is the method. And that is where Suzuki observed that children don't just you know, learn a new thing, learn a new thing, learn a new thing, learn a new thing, and forget things they've learned. They learn something and then they use it, use it, use it, use it, use it until almost drives you crazy. And then they add another thing, right? So when a baby starts speaking, they'll make a bunch of noise and right around the time they probably stand up and walk, their cortex clicks into gear and they'll say a word, mama or something. And you're like, wow, did you hear that? Mm -hmm. He said mama, Mm -hmm. his first word, how Mm -hmm. exciting. Then he uses that word. Mm -hmm. continuously, incessantly, Mm -hmm. until you wonder, you know, is he ever going to get a different word? And then one day you hear it, the next clear word. Uh, In my case with my first child, I hoped it would be Dada, Mm -hmm. but it was Coco, the dog who lived next door. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, But then this child uses these two words kind of continuously until you wonder, you know, are they going to get another word? And then one day you hear the third word and then pretty soon the fourth and the fifth, but they continuously use all the words they've learned. Mm-hmm. So there's a cumulative effect here. Mm-hmm. 
that is extremely powerful. I think uh, a lot of us have had the experience of trying to learn something, you know, whether it's maybe biology or a foreign language or whatever, and we have a chapter, or we have a list of vocabulary, and we practice, 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 we get ready, we pass the quiz, but then we got to go to the next chapter or the next list and practice, 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 and we don't have a chance to use and apply mm. that first set of information. So what happens? Use it or lose it. Yeah, use it or lose it. So it kind of degrades, and then you hurry up, okay, learn another set of information, but you don't have time to practice and use. So you continue on for months or a whole school year, and what do you really know at that moment? The last chapter that you studied. Yeah, the most recent stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have to make a very serious effort to maintain mm -hmm. what you learned earlier in the curriculum, earlier in the process. And Suzuki noted, you know, that that's a hard way. And it doesn't l lend itself to fluency, to mastery, to ease. Mm -hmm. Whereas children... They don't learn a new word till what they've learned so far has now become easy. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty easy for children to continuously improve their ability to speak a language because they're following the right method. So he transferred that over and said, well, uh, the children, when they learn to play a piece of music, such as Twinkle Variation A, right? Taka taka stop up, taka taka stop up, right? <laughs> 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 all right. And they play Twinkle all the way through with this thing. Once they've learned it, they don't stop playing that. They play that every day while they work on the next variation, right? And then they don't stop playing those. They keep playing that while they work on the next one. Then when they've got all the four variations and the theme, which is harder because it used longer bows, which are actually harder to control and make a good tone. That's why he starts with very short, mm -hmm. uh, short staccato type of bows. Once they've learned Twinkle and all the, and the the variations in the theme, they don't stop playing it. They continue to play it while they learn the next piece, Lightly Row. Once they've learned Lightly Row, they don't stop. They play Twinkle Variations, Theme, and Lightly Row while they go for Song of the Wind. Once they got Song of the Wind pretty well down, they keep playing it along with everything else while they go for Go Tell Aunt Rody. So a properly trained Suzuki student would essentially always be able to play every piece mm. that he or she had ever learned. Wow. Now, to do that, you have to maintain kind of a rigor of repetition. You have to maintain the discipline of review, uh, periodic review, so that you don't forget these things. Mm -hmm. uh, we are not as good in this country as they are in Japan with this or other countries we tend to get bored or impatient. I often contemplate the idea that Suzuki method really could not have taken hold in the U.S. the way it did in Japan. Japan was the perfect country for it to come into being because they have a very high tolerance for repetition. If you look at the martial arts tradition, if mm. you look at some of the cultural things, it's all about doing the same exact thing again and again and again and again until you start to go crazy <laughs> and keep doing it until you break through to a new level of understanding. And we Americans just don't really have the tolerance for that level of repetition. 
although it is required of anyone who wants to become truly a master mm-hmm. of anything, whether it's music or dance or painting or acting, of course. But but the general kid here is gets bored much more easily, I think. So in Japan, there's a, a saying. We don't even have an equivalent for it. Uh, you know, a lot of times you'll say, okay, there's a, a saying, you know, a penny earned is a penny saved. So there's a there's an equivalent in different languages for that one. This thing in Japanese, you can translate it, but there's nothing we ever say that's similar, and that is 10,000 times, and then begins understanding. Begins understanding. Yes. That's a lot of times. It is a lot of times. <laughs> and we, we just can't conceive of doing something 10,000 times. But you reach that breakthrough where you've done something so many times. Now you don't have to think about what you're doing. You can observe mm-hmm. what you're doing in a detached, objective, and very powerful way mm-hmm. and start to actually understand what you're doing. I don't know. In English, what do we have? You know, try, try again. Third time's a charm. I'm, You know, 10,000? I think of Mrs. Ingham. Didn't she say 52 times? Well, yeah, she had a little chart for, Mm -hmm. you know, how many repetitions is needed. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, that was looking at simpler things like how to spell a word or recognizing a phonogram or Mm -hmm. reading something. Whereas one of the things a, a, a very, very fine teacher made beautifully clear to me one time Uh, She's actually an American, but she'd spent a lot of time Mm. in Japan as well. And I I would regard her as one of the best teachers I've ever seen. Mm. She made it very clear to every student and to me as I observed her that you can play a book one piece. You can play Lightly Row, which you learned when you were five years old, right, at a book ten level. Hmm. Right? A book 10 student doesn't play lightly row like a book 3 student or a book 1 student. Right. So there's a depth, there's a nuance, there's an infinite capability hmm. to perfect even the simplest things. And uh, that, uh, I think, is part of the, the Japanese culture as well. And part of perhaps what made them, you know, very successful industrially is that they were able to take an idea and just work it, work it, work mm-hmm. it, work it, work it, mm-hmm. perfect it, and do it better than the people who invented it. Right. You know, which is why they sell us cars now. <laughs> <laughs> I drive a Japanese car. <laughs> so Suzuki believed that if these four pillars were mm-hmm. in place, the right environment, the right, um, the right period, meaning young age, the right environment, the right teacher, and the right methodology that all four of those would kind of synergistically allow a child to learn anything. 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 So not just violin. Not just violin. Mm, Violin and perhaps piano as well? Yep. Well, there's Suzuki instruments all over the place. Sure. But one of the things that had uh, started... And was rolling pretty well by the time I got to Japan was a talent education preschool. Hmm. So there was actually a building 
that had a large number of children who were uh, three to six years old, and they were attempting to apply the principles of talent education in the learning of all other subjects. And just to clarify, when you say talent education, you're not saying particularly gifted students. This is just Suzuki's idea that every child can learn. Right, exactly. Um, the word sainokyoiku, which is the sainokyoiku kenkyukai, which is the school, can be translated as ability development, mm. which was the title of his second book, Ability Development from Age Zero. Or they can be translated as talent education. Hmm. So kyoiku education in general, specific education. Um, now talent, you see, Suzuki was going against the world's idea that it was inborn. That you either had musical talent or you didn't. That was kind of the view of a lot of people. And you should really only spend your time and money giving music lessons to a child who had clear signs, clear evidence of talent. Mm -hmm. so, so when he started saying talent education, it seemed almost like a contradictory term, yes. almost an oxymoron. Well, talent's inborn. How do you educate it? Mm -hmm. And so that was his great work. Mm -hmm. He also believed that through the wrong environment, you could deprive, you could harm people of their natural talent. He mm. once, in one of the books, he said, I could make Beethoven tone deaf. Right? Given the right environment, mm. if you wanted to destroy Beethoven's presumably inborn mm -hmm. natural musical aptitude and ability, you could do that. Just like you could take someone who wasn't like Beethoven and improve the environment and help them become a great musician. Right. So kind of was radical yep. in the world. Yep. And uh, now, like a lot of things that have been around and been successful for so long, it's not nearly as controversial, and people tend to maybe take it for granted. Right. But what I observed in the talent education preschool there, I think was really what planted the seeds for me to follow the path for the rest of my life, mm -hmm. which was to try to do Suzuki method everything. <laughs> right, right. And on that, I, you know, we're out of time, as it happens. Every time we do a podcast, we've run out of time. But I do want to pick up this conversation, if we can, next week and talk about that a little bit more. How do you do Suzuki everything? Sure. Are you up sure. for that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'll talk to you then. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. <laughs>